Hi, I'm Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company, and we're here to do an interview with Margaret Ellen Christensen, who was known as Margaret Ellen Jeffries uh, back in the day. Uh, she uh, grew up here, I guess, went to school here, and then went off to the Big Apple, uh, where she met her husband, yeah. who appeared in our production of Arcadia earlier this year, and Margaret will be appearing in the, uh, the next play, the final play of our season, which is A Little Night Music by Stephen Sondheim and George Firth. So, um, and that's coming up April 4th through 21st here at the Murphy School. So we thought we'd bring Margaret Ellen in and ask her a few questions and grill her a little bit, find out a little bit about how her life has been going. Margaret, first of all, is it Mar do you prefer Margaret Ellen or Margaret? Or? What I always tell people is Margaret was my grandmother. Yes. Um, my grandmother was Margaret Ellen, my mother is Margaret Ellen, and I'm Margaret Ellen. Grandmother was Margaret, my mom goes by Marty, and I'm Margaret Ellen. Or Emmy, either one. There is a bell. Yeah, exactly, very easy. Okay, so Miss Christensen, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so uh, tell us first of all uh, about um, your experience here in Raleigh. Uh, how did you get into theater? Is that something you had wanted to do from a very early age, or did you have a sort of a formative experience there? Yeah, I think I think it's both. I mean, I started when I was a child. I started singing in church choir, the Presbyterian Church. Mm -hmm. um, I started playing violin in fourth grade, and I was dancing from like age five, I think. So I was singing and dancing, and I loved that, and I grew up uh, watching movie musicals with my dad. Mm -hmm. So I loved musicals, um, and as I got a little bit older, uh, into high school, I started doing just the school musical. Mm -hmm. um, I played Mary the Librarian in Music Man my senior year. I someone else in the room played uh, Mary and the Librarian. That's Amazing. Amazing. Her life. That's Abby behind the camera there. <laughs> Um, and then when I came to NC State, um, I was on a big academic scholarship and I actually thought I was going to be a veterinarian. So I was pre-vet at NC State on the Park Scholarship. And, um, but I quickly was drawn to university theater. Um, I think I saw a show they did early on and I just kept being pulled over there more and more as time went on. Um, I worked in props and I learned about costumes and um, very quickly I signed up for an acting class and sort of once I started there, I kind of never left. So um, I worked very closely with John McElwee for yes. all four years. And Thank you, rest in peace. Uh, great loss for the community. Absolutely. Um, I think about him all the time and uh, Every, I even said my bio for this, I feel like every show I've ever done, especially this one that's coming, is, is for John. So, um, he, was, he was my mentor all through school. Uh, he was my mentor for my scholarship, and he was really like a theater father for me. And, um, and so many other people at NC State and beyond in the world of theater. But um, I really fell in love with the theater um, wholeheartedly at, at University Theater at NC State. And um, I did some shows throughout <clears throat> throughout Raleigh um, and the Triangle um, during my time in undergrad there. And, uh, yeah, well, I know. Well, you know, that we, uh, we owe a great debt of gratitude to John as well. The, our very first production was done at the Studio Theater uh, oh. in, at the Thompson. You know, uh, it's different now. It's arranged differently, but it was that smaller space in the back, the 90-seat uh, black box space. Um, we, Simi and I went to John and said, you know, we're starting a theater company, we want to do this play. And uh, he did not say, um, how much can you pay? Uh, 
He did not say, what are your credentials? He, he didn't even say, what is the play? Although we eventually told him that. Um, but, uh, but he said yes, uh, pretty much right off the bat. And, 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 you know, he did ask for rent. It's not like he didn't do that. But that's not what he was doing. He was trying to foster a relationship and trying to give uh, people, you know, at that time, believe it or not, young people, uh, you know, who, uh, who had a dream to, to create something. He was trying to give them a leg up, and, and he did. And, and we ended up doing several shows in that space over the years. Um, but that first one, you know, without that, I don't really know where we would be uh, or if we would be. So, so John, thank you, wherever you are, uh, for that as well. So, wherever um, he is, it's pink. It's, and there, there are feathers. In yes, too, so. absolutely. Um, yeah, he provided such a theater home for so many um, people in school. You know, um, Byron Jennings, yeah. who everyone knows now. Um, I like to jokingly call, call him the, the mayor or the king of Triangle Theater. It feels like that's true. Mm -hmm. um, we, he's my best friend and my, my brother in undergrad. So um, I'm so excited he's going to be in a little night music. We're like reuniting on stage, and we did the show together um, at State. You did this show. We did. So I think it was 2002. I feel like it was our senior year. Um, Byron was a, a, a butler. I don't think he got to. I don't remember if he got to sing or not. I hope they did. But um, uh, but I played Anne uh, when we did at that time, and John was Frederick. Um, so, but John just created such an inclusive atmosphere for kids who just love theater no matter what their their major you know we had athletes we had student athletes who wanted to come and do like one play or one class sure. um everybody had an opportunity he would expand on cast he would find places for everybody backstage on stage design and he just created that that home for people and i think i'm i know i'm not the only person to say that you know go coming from a place like nc state that's not like an accredited theater program mm -hmm. I feel like I got just as much of a foundation for professional theater as a number of people I've worked with over the years in my professional career mm -hmm. who went to the, the bigger schools, the bigger name schools. Mm -hmm. so and that accreditation issue is not about quality, it's about certain systemic ideas that, uh, that the government has, has placed upon it. It doesn't mean that they're not doing well or doing good by the students or, or providing uh, a good education. Yeah, I'm sure that's true of many people. I, I learned about 90% of everything I know about theater from my high school drama teacher, you know, and, um, and, and haven't found a teacher since then that I would put in her category, to be honest with you. So, uh, so it's, um, it, it really doesn't matter, although we, we do do that a lot. We create hierarchies in our business. We rail against them in everyday life, but then when we if you get into the theater, we start building our own little hierarchies. I guess it's just a human human nature thing. And speaking of which, uh, so so you finished school, you've done a number of plays, you've obviously been very successful here um, on the campus and off the campus as well. And then the next step for an artist in America has to be go to New York, right? That's the time in which we live, uh, which an artist who comes from a place like Raleigh, North Carolina, cannot fully think of themselves as an artist unless they live in New York City. You're right? not allowed. That's yeah. right. You have to stifle that idea. Uh, at least that's how we think, I think. And so tell me about that a little bit. Tell me about what that was like when you first... Had you been to New York before? Or? 
I, um, I had sort of a, a winding road to, to get there for sure. I had never visited New York until I was, I actually looked into going to seminary for youth ministry mm -hmm. at the end of uh, undergrad. Yeah. So the story that I love to tell is that I actually left the visiting weekend for Princeton Seminary um, to go to New York. <laughs> at the very end of the weekend, I was like, this is not for me. I, I was sort of deciding between theater grad school or a seminary. Yeah. Crazily enough, and uh, by the by, like Saturday night and visiting and going to all these sessions, I said, "This is not right. It's it's theater grad school, and I'm going to go to the city tomorrow and go see shows." So that's what I did. I said, as I took a train, and when I saw Chicago and I saw Aida musical, not the opera, and um, I absolutely loved it. And I said, "I'm going to live here. I'm going to come back here. I've got to figure this out." And uh, I went to grad school in Orlando at University of Central Florida. Mm -hmm. I got my MFA there yeah. in uh, musical theater, but we were part of the broader theater program as well, so we got to be in plays and you know, normal acting classes as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, and then I went to uh, Cincinnati, to the Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, mm -hmm. for their internship where I got EMC points and worked there for a year. Yeah. And after that, I moved to New York. Mm -hmm. So uh, in New York, you know, I moved to Astoria. I got- As you know, one does. As yeah. one does, Actoria, they used to say. Yeah. Um, I lived in Astoria with one of my friends from my internship and another best friend um, in, from Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. Moved to the city together and uh, I was auditioning for things immediately. You know, mm -hmm. going to the big group calls. I, was, I wasn't equity yet. Um, so you get up at four in the morning, you curl your hair, you do things, yeah. get on the bus, you go or the train, you go into the city. Yeah, I was not curling my hair. <laughs> Probably. Um, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, when you wait, when you're not equity, not union, yeah. You sit and you wait and you're on a big list and you hope that they might see non-equity that day. You do all the preparation and you wait. Um, and then there were non-equity auditions as well. I was one of one of those. Um, I did some workshops of small things in weird places. I did a show called Zuli in the Last Place on Earth. It was a play about dogs that was at like a children's play space, something in Brooklyn. Um, I did some workshops along the way, but I was auditioning to basically work outside of New York or in New York, yeah. but you have to be in New York to do those auditions. Mm -hmm. So um, very quickly, I was very, very lucky. Um, I was cast in the Fantastics at Cincinnati Playhouse. They brought me back, and that was my equity card. Yeah. Um, I was cast in that, and just before that, I was cast in the National Tour of Annie. That was non-equity. Yeah. So I knew my union card was waiting when I got back home, but uh, for several months, I went on the non-union tour of yeah. Annie. And then when I was in town, I was you know, working two, three jobs, nannying, sampling yogurt at Whole Foods out to people, um, you know, <laughs> handing out Jamba Juice um, yeah. flyers next to a person dressed like a banana, and then doing those. An actor dressed like You're a banana. You're right, it was almost always an actor dressed like a banana. <laughs> Their face did not have to be shown, which was saving grace for them and me, honestly, because um, uh, and then auditioning all the time and subletting my apartment in Astoria that hardly ever going to see. I was lucky enough to get to bring my dog with me and negotiate for that. At Cincinnati or um, in Cincinnati in several of your theaters, but yeah. other times you have to find someone to stay with the dog and yeah, okay. you're just constantly on the move. That would be terrible. Huh? I yeah. didn't have a dog, so I didn't have to worry about that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, those uh, those auditions at the Equity Building. Uh, I tell young people, you know, that that I used to 
you know, do what you just described, except for the hair curling part. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, you get there, and, and it's already, you know, there's already a, down the block, you know, the line of people who already got there and are waiting. And uh, sometimes it's raining or 12 degrees or whatever. Um, and uh, and then you get in and, and you sign up for a slot maybe at three or four o'clock in the afternoon and then you go away and then you come back at that time. And, and I said, uh, you know, when I really started being successful as an actor is when I started not caring anymore. When I, when I realized that for the, of the, of the 30,000 actors in Manhattan, only 300 of them had come to that audition, or 500, or whatever, and so I was, I'd already won, you know, I'd already achieved the, the goal, you know, and, uh, and when I, when I could, could believe that, not just think it, but believe it as well in my heart, I had this sensation, I'm curious if you had this sensation too, that when I would walk into that room, you know, that long, narrow room with the bathrooms in the back and the little <laughs> studios on the side, when, you walk, when I would walk in, I would feel, I actually felt like I was above, physically above the people in the room, almost like I was walking on air or something like that. Did you have an experience? Sure, like I that? don't know, I don't think that's so. Weird. That's, that's like, amazing, that's you know, that's the dream. Yeah, it didn't feel like, um, oh God, uh, nobody will like me, uh, why am I wasting my time? It just felt like, okay, here it is. Uh, and I could see these other people fretting all yes. around me, but they were below me. I don't know, yeah. I mean, that's essentially arrogant or whatever, selfish, but, but I really did have that experience in the last couple of years that I was there, and that's when I started getting, yeah. getting cancer. I mean, I think it's, you know, as long as we're, I work in HR now and diversity and inclusion, so I would encourage people not to actually look down on other people, but um, <laughs> as long as you're, I mean, I think there is a, transition that you can hopefully go through as far as your own like mental health about yeah. the audition situation that it's your you know you make your peace with what it is that it's your opportunity to perform for these people sometimes it's an intern who's not really looking at anybody yeah. but it's an opportunity for you to practice the stuff you've been working on for you to perform for you to you know show up as yourself and just practice yeah. auditioning if yeah. nothing else yeah. um so, so it's never a loss yeah there is there is an audience so you yeah I think I think there were definitely very early on. I was always very upset. I thought like if I wore the exact right dress, the exact right shoes, and my hair was exactly right, yeah. and and I sang the exact right song and the piece of that song, then they would get it and yeah. they would see that I was, you know, I had worked really hard to pick the perfect song for that character. And it's just not about that. It's not at all. Mm -hmm. And there are so many factors you'll never know. It so often has nothing to do with who you are or how you perform at all. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make, you have to do it for yourself instead of do it to book the job. And that is so much easier said than done. And it's way easier to say now that I'm not doing it anymore for a living. Mm -hmm. But once I was able to be in more of that mindset, I was able to be far more successful too. Well, and that is, uh, that is the place, the, the goal that one, one aspires to. Um, when you decided to come back, uh, I assume your marriage was part of that. Uh, were there other things that pulled you away from New York and from that lifestyle then? Um, Tom and I both kind of stopped pursuing acting professionally at the same time, not really on purpose, but I think for both of us, our lives had kind of gotten to a place that we, um, I was talking about this with Abby, um, you know, the actor, professional actor lifestyle is not rooted in stability. It is not rooted in logistical, financial, 
or sometimes mental stability. Mm -hmm. And so for me, what I always tell people, and it's still true, is that I wanted things in my life to be able to grow. And in that place where I was, I wasn't able to find that. I literally couldn't keep a plant alive. I wasn't taking good care mm -hmm. of my dog. I couldn't grow relationships. I couldn't visit my family at the holidays because every, when I was doing it, I was saying this earlier too, like every minute, every dollar, every thought is about your career, or it was for me at the time. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to make space for other things in my life. And so through just a series of events, like I was kind of already on this path, but really at the time that I met Tom, Technically, we met doing a show. We met doing Company, uh -huh. another Sondheim musical. Yeah. Um, Tom will joke that he had no business singing, but he was great. Uh, he played David. I played Susan. and um, But we were both kind of at the point where we'd been doing it and doing it and doing it and realizing like this may not be what we want long term for our lives. And so we, um, we met in 2013. Uh, we were married in 2016. And really like toward the start of the pandemic we started thinking about leaving new york because we weren't performing anymore um, we were both in in jobs that um were you know we were successful in them we enjoyed them but we didn't necessarily have to be in new york the way that we did to be actors mm -hmm. and so um certainly after the worst of the pandemic was over we started thinking about more seriously uh leaving new york because it's a very stressful place to live yeah. and didn't want to be there forever and uh, mm -hmm. North Carolina had you know great context for both of us my family's still here in Greensboro uh, we have friends all over the state and we really love being close to nature and we wanted to I really wanted to get involved back in theater again and find a way to perform for fun and um, there's such good theater around the entire triangle here so we really mm -hmm. wanted to be a part of that so why why do we why have we created a system that's that antagonistic toward artists. I mean, the, the description of your life up to the point when you got to New York is clearly the life story and the trajectory of an artist, right? Why do we create this almost impossible barrier um, uh, for, for artists? Why do we do that? That's a good question. And is there a way to break that somehow? Why we created, I mean, it's, it was created a long time ago, so I hope we're not still creating it now, but I think when, when some, I don't know, I think you, people want to be able to do it, and I think when it seems so impossible to be able to be an artist, then you look for anything that's a path that came before that someone did it. So I think that, mm -hmm. like, perpetuates how that happens, and I think they're often even, teachers who say, who are sort of embittered by going through the process themselves and say, well, this is the only thing you have to do and this is what you have to do, so then it sort of perpetuates those same bad habits. Um, and I think, I, I wish there was more respect for the artist's path in general. You know, mm -hmm. I, we could talk about patriarchy and white supremacy and capitalism, but that would be a longer conversation. <laughs> but I think it's part of that. It's a big part of that. But um, I think there is not as much, you know, the idea, it's, it's hard to accept that an artist's path is a legitimate profession or a legitimate path for a life. And so there's just no vision of making it easy, I feel like. How does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I, I, I have always felt that, that it might have something to do with the, the, the city's, um, New York City's brand as well. 
um, you know, in, in England, which is not the only other place on earth, but, but it certainly is the, probably the great theater city in the world. All of the, the arts are there together. You know, the film industry, the television, radio, commercials, all of that is, and, and the stage. And so people who um, are, want to work in, in the theater um, can, can do it and stay at home. You know, they don't have to be flying, you know, to Iowa to do a reading, you know, or something like that, and leaving their dog behind, let alone their loved ones or their apartment. And, and so, um, so what would make sense would be for the geographic center of the country to be the geographic center for artists as well. But the economic center of the country is in that little island up in the northeast. And they are not letting go of that mantle of supremacy, you know, yeah. to use the word you just used. You know, they are the, the place, and they're going to continue to tell us that they're the place. All you have to do is turn on the television for five minutes, and you'll get a very clear idea that, you know, whether it's the morning news shows, uh, you know, the Today Show or something like that, or all the cop shows, you know. When was the last time you saw a cop show set in Des Moines? Right, right. Uh, it just doesn't happen, or, or Little Rock, you know. Uh, when Ironically, there are a lot of them in Chicago. Chicago is also a place where you can live and work in the theater at night yeah. and not even be in the union. But. Yes, yes, <laughs> you can be not, that's right, that's right. Uh, um, but, uh, but again, it, it, to me, it feels like it has something to do with the economics of, of it, too. Um, and, uh, and again, it doesn't have to be. If you're going to be working as a dog walker uh, or as a waitress, you could do that in, in Kansas City just as easily as you could do it in New York. So there's no reason for a theater artist to be located up in one little corner and in a virtually unlivable place, but they insist upon uh, that, and, and we go along with it. Uh, I mean, I think, too, with so much funding being centralized there, too, yeah. you know, regional theaters used to be a place where repertory companies could live and stay and work forever and sort of even work in the broader region. I've worked with so many people in the Cincinnati, Dayton, is sort of like Ohio, St. Louis region yeah. who lived there and stayed there and did really amazing work and were as good as anything you see in New York. Sure. And now, you know, it's so, all I hear anywhere is how every theater, even the, the, the biggest names, the biggest ones that were always flourishing, even when I was doing it professionally 10 years ago, are losing so much funding. And so it just seems like it's really difficult financially for, like, you know, high production values to be funded across the company the way that they are. Yeah, yeah. And, and everybody wants stars, too, in their, in their plays, uh, which is another... Well, we're, we're getting a little bit off point. Uh, the point that I really wanted to talk with you about, and, and we'll uh, wrap up on this subject, is uh, Sondheim, Stephen Sondheim. Uh, so you've done a company, you've done a little night music before. Other other Sondheims in your pocket? Yes. Um, so this is my third time doing a little night music. I uh, played Anne in, at the end of college. I played Petra um, in Cincinnati, and I'm playing Petra again here. Um, I did company... In, in New York, um, and uh, we did Follies at, at NC State, sort of their professional um, show at the end of the season mm -hmm. as well. Um, and I feel like there's another one that I'm, I'm blanking on. Did you just wing something? I did not, I wish. I would love to. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so tell me about Sondheim. Tell, what, is, what does his work mean to you? Um, the short word is short version is everything, but we don't have enough time to go into it. Um, I think that I mean I, he is my favorite hands down musical theater composer of all time. I think he's definitely the musical theater Shakespeare. Yeah. I'm sure that's overstated, but um, he's just incredible. You know, much like Shakespeare, what you need is on the page by and large. There's always room for interpretation for acting, but. What you need to say, what you're feeling, is there in the score mm -hmm. instead of necessarily just in the in the words. Um, but as a lot of times there are the words too, so it's it's clear by listening to the the even just the melody, but really the full score of sort of what your character is going through and how things fit together, how the story fits together. Um, and that part is always so exciting to me that every time I listen to a Sondheim score, there's something that I've missed that mm -hmm. makes it make even more sense or be deeper or more meaningful to mm -hmm. me. That's how opera is typically written as well, right? The music leads you, uh, literally the movement is, is predicated on the, what the music's doing and, and vice versa. I think there's also um, like something about knowing that it's difficult uh -huh. that's sort of a pride thing of like this is really hard and we did it you know i figured this out and i am singing this line right you know there's something there's a pride to that of like sort of sorting out the puzzle especially with a company of people on a, a larger show if it's like this um that's just really rewarding it's like a pride like we're finishing a crossword puzzle <laughs> exactly in which and he used to contribute to yes. the new york times crossword that Puzzles. He was one of the people who would, I think he did it anonymously, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. um, and, uh, and so I'm, as, I, as I think about uh, his, his work as an artist, I think about that idea of putting a puzzle together. It felt like that he would create problems for himself. Uh, mm -hmm. do you, have you had that sense with his stuff? That he would say, like in night music, he would say, I'm writing the whole thing uh, yeah. as a waltz, you know, right. which nobody's ever done right. before. Uh, I'm writing a two and a half hour uh, musical as a waltz. Uh, I think he did consistently set the mark like, too high for himself, but then he managed to at least almost yeah. reach it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, which is, a, I think, a great lesson for, for all of us, you know, we're kind of spinning through space on this rock, you know, and, and uh, you know, in the, who knows whether the rock will even be there in another hundred years, but, uh, uh, or be spinning, but, uh, but while we're here, uh, how much can we get out of it, you know, and, and for some time the answer to that was, uh, you know, through the creation of these great Puzzles, these great challenges for, for actors. Uh, um, so, uh, so I'm very much looking forward to it. It will be my third uh, go at Sondheim. I've done um, a company early on. We did it right after 9-11, actually, and um, deliberately chose that play for that moment in history. Uh, and then we did uh, uh, Sunday in the Park with George a few years ago, which I... Um, uh, dearly loved, and someday we'll, we'll do again, I think, before I get too old. To... One of my, um, my, my big sort of senior piece that I've worked on at State and right. um, did later in grad school as part of the KCACTF was Move On, and that was with Byron Jennings, actually, so we uh, got to sing that song in school and worked on it a lot. It's a beautiful piece. Uh, um, Sondheim uh, reminds me a lot of, uh, of Benjamin Britten, uh, the composer who, uh, who wrote uh, a, a half dozen uh, 
I think, great uh, 20th century uh, modern, you know, very modern operas, uh, including um, Billy Budd and uh, Turn of the Screw, which I directed years ago with the North Carolina uh, Opera, the NC Opera, or Opera NC, I think they're called now. Um, and, uh, and I started out with the sensation of that it was completely flat, that there was no, there was nothing there except this sort of atonal <laughs> drone. And by the end of it, I was just madly in love with that piece of music. It's so subtle. And, uh, and I find a little bit sometime that way too. Like each time I listen to it, I, I start to hear another layer underneath what I thought was there, and so uh, so I'm listening to it a lot right now. Yeah, and, uh, you, you learn more every time, I think, yeah. you know, um, in Merrily Roll Along, which I understand will be happening here next year, very yes. exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a whole thing about you can't, you've got to write a hummable melody, and he, he received all that criticism himself, and so that's him, you know, so I'm putting it himself into his writing once again, but, um, while his music isn't always immediately hummable, save perhaps for Sin and the Clowns, which is the best known song in, in our show, but um, there's just always more to it. it. It takes a little more engagement than you might want to spend sort of in your average like Spotify scrolling, <laughs> shuffling these days, but yeah, right. it's worth it. It's yeah, worth it. yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and yet it does work, you know, I've, I've found that people who don't know Sondheim at all, if you can get them in that chair, uh, you know, then two and a half hours later, they'll they'll be converted. You know. Well, Margaret Ellen, this is uh, this is fabulous. It's great to have you back, um, and it's great to have you joining us for uh, a, a little night music uh, by Sondheim and Firth, uh, and we will be doing that again. I'll turn to the camera now and say uh, April fourth through twenty first at Burning Coal Theater, and the website is burningcoal.org. So if you'd like to get tickets now, that would be advisable. It's probably going to be a big seller. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you at the next one.